Welcome to the Roots in the Boot podcast by Louisiana Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative. In each episode, we will be talking to producers in and near our state who are willing to share their mistakes, successes, and discuss issues unique to farming and ranching in our southern climate. LGLCI is a nonprofit organization comprised of producers, organizations, and advisors working together to conserve and improve Louisiana's grazing lands, soil, watersheds, and ultimately its people. We promote ecologically and economically sound grazing land management practices through education and networking. Here is this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone to our inaugural Roots in the Boot podcast by the Louisiana Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative. My name is Ellen Harrell and I am the executive director for LGLCI and I'm joined today by our education outreach coordinator, Tara Morris, and our intern, Bethany Morris. Um, And we are sitting down with Ted Miller, who is the owner of Delta Dairy. He and his wife and four kids are in Baskin, Louisiana, where they've been for the last 14 years after a non-traditional succession, um, after leaving their farm in Pennsylvania. And today he's going to talk to us about month-to-month and seasonal challenges with year-round forage-based nutrition. Ted, welcome. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate the opportunity to be on and uh, forage discussion, uh, especially in southern climates. I think it's an exciting topic, and I think we can uh, we can have some good discussion today. Well, Ted, I'm going to dive right in. Ellen has given us a good overview of what your farm does. Can you tell us why in the world are we interviewing a dairy farmer? I know you and I have talked a little bit about forage year-round. Why are we interviewing you today as a dairy farmer? for you know for information for beef farmers as well and sheep and everything else well i think there's a lot of crossover uh between dairy and the other ruminant industries um you know obviously you know with with ruminant agriculture we're trying to um we're trying to utilize protein and energy in forages uh primarily derived from uh from solar energy that's available on our farms and uh transfer that or transform that into a, uh, a nutrient source that not only grows our livestock, but then produces a saleable commodity that, uh, that is good for the whole of mankind and uh, brings profitability to our farms and all those types of things. So, so in a nutshell, we're, we're feeding the same type of animal, even if we're not producing exactly the same commodity. So a lot of those, um, a lot of those same ingredients are necessary. Um, I know we have some advantages in the in the dairy business um, in that we're selling our commodity on a daily basis, so we can measure um, on a daily basis how our animals are reacting to the forages that we're feeding them. Uh, so it, it gives us a uh, gives us a little bit of an advantage in that in that industry, but we'd like to um, help share that information as much as we can with beef producers um, who don't have the opportunity to see that measured quite as often so i I think that um that that helps a little bit and and forage quality is always of of the utmost and what we do um it does take uh, a a higher level of nutritional quality to to keep a a lactating dairy cow performing as as opposed to um even a higher producing brood cow that's raising a calf There's there's a little more energy output with milk production so so forage quality is always in the center of our wheelhouse. It's where we it's where we are all the time. Um, you know, so 
we, we think about it and deal with it a lot. So, I, you know, it, it helps to be able to, uh, we're in a position where we can, where we can share that, I think, easily. Whenever you say you're daily measuring, um, is that, I'm assuming that's milk quantity or is it quality? How are you actually able to measure and is it showing you forage quality? You know, how, how is that working? Yeah, sure. So what, what we do, the, the main measurement there would be daily milk production and volume. Uh, the, the cows are going to respond um, to changes in nutritional availability the quickest uh, and most pronounced with a change in volume of production. Uh, quality of the milk would change somewhat too as far as the components, uh, the component makeup of our milk, which we also measure on a daily basis, things such as uh, butterfat and protein and, and other solids. And they change some depending on the nutritional availability for the cow as well. The big thing though is, is forage quality. Um, and then we're gonna take that data or that response that the cow gives us. And we're gonna, we're gonna go back and look at um, not only quality of forage, but quantity in the fact that we are uh, giving individual daily breaks to these cattle. Um, when we graze them, they would, they would have individual daily allotments of forage to eat. So we would need to change uh, the amount of area that they're given uh, or the field size that they're given. And then the other side of that, for what we do, we're supplementing that forage with some grain in the parlor when we milk. So we might, uh, we might change that makeup a little bit um, to, to respond to what we have available on the forage side. But, the, but forage quality and quantity are really the drivers um, in, on the input side of what, what's driving our decision-making there. And then we're using the data of the, of the milk out the other end to, to be able to kind of steer us. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I noticed something recently with my chickens. Um, uh, I got some discounted feed that had some bugs in it and I gave it to my chickens and it was really high in protein and I immediately started getting more eggs. So I would think that chickens are kind of a great quick indicator, kind of similar to that as well on egg production. You can actually count the number of eggs you're getting in a day, which is kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, um, the, way these, the way these animals kind of react to, uh, you know, you know, They'll, they'll survive on a lot, but then they, they, they perform or, um, or excel when we add those added inputs. Yeah, very interesting. Tell us a little bit about um, the uniqueness of your dairy. I know you guys have some really unique things that you do. And, and tell us also, are you a 100% grass-fed dairy? Why or why not? Sure. Uh, yeah. So we're, we would be, if, if we had to define what our model looks like, and, and I know this, this may not be uh, helpful to all the listeners, but to some, it may be, we would resemble a, a New Zealand style uh, dairy grazing operation. Uh, dairy is New Zealand's number one industry, and they produce that milk over there in a pastoral environment, uh, seasonally on grass, because of the maritime climate that, that New Zealand happens to find itself in. So we follow that model, even though we're not in that, in a climate that's exactly like that. We're much more continental here in North Louisiana, uh, but we do, we do capture some of those same benefits that they enjoy over there, such as uh, we can grow grass um, 300 days a year for the most part. Um, not something that we can, that can be done in all areas of the North American continent. Uh, 
we can also uh, harvest that grass through grazing um, to some degree 365 days a year, you know, weather dependent, but 12 months out of the year, we can utilize grazing again, farther north, um, they, they can't do that through the entirety of the year. So those are the main reasons that we, that we're located here. That's what we're trying to capture um, labor efficiency from running a, as, as close to 100% pastoral environment as we can. Uh, we're not 100% grass fed. We do, we do supplement our, uh, both our young cattle seasonally to a degree and our, our milk cows daily in the milking parlor when we, uh, during milking. So the milk cows are probably going to see uh, 60%, maybe between 60 and 70% of their annual dry, total dry matter intake coming from forage. Um, and we're going to be 30 to 40% um, dry mm. matter intake requirement met from grain. Uh, heifers would be less, probably uh, probably 10 to 15 percent of, of, of annual dry matter intake is going to come from forage and a, and a small amount coming from grain. And we can talk about that in a little more detail as we, as we move along, uh, why we do that. Um, so we wouldn't be classified as a, as, a grass, as, as a grass milk dairy. There's some milk that's marketed under a grass milk label, and we would not qualify for that because we do uh, we do supplement with some grain. So our milk is simply marketed on the commodity market right now. Uh, no special labeling, no value adding, um, but we're, we're just doing what we're doing to capitalize on some input cost savings and some labor efficiencies um, that come with this type of model. Why did you guys decide not to be a grass dairy? Is that even possible in Louisiana? You know, that's a really key question, uh, Tara, that you ask, and, and that's a that's one that took us a lot, a lot of uh, trial and error. Um, and, and I think it developed a lot of a lot of respect from our part on the southern climate and the, and the southern forage model. And for that for that reason, primarily is why we're not 100 percent grass today. Um, a couple of the things that go with a 100% with grass dairy operation, even in the north where you have optimal quality of forages. Um, and that's going to be, it's, it's interesting if you look around the, the globe, uh, latitude speaking, most all the dairy production in the world is, is above the 40th parallel. I believe that's the north border of Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so dairy production is at home in a more temperate climate. And the reason for that is you have a longer season of, of extremely high quality forage, uh, even though you have to break that with winter and dormant season. So even up there where there are more, some all grass dairies, the stocking rate has to become very low. Uh, you're talking maybe three to five acres per cow. So return on land investment can be an issue. Uh, fertility cycling can be an issue because you're not bringing in uh, really any outside nutrient sources in the form of grain or anything else so that may be a problem at times um, so that's the reason we're not operating that way and then added to that we're kind of outside that zone for really even having a possibility of being optimally profitable with that that all being said we're in an environment where we can produce 
a tremendous amount of dry matter over a 12-month period um, with, with a fair amount of that being um, lower to mediocre quality, uh, probably even subpar for a, for a high-producing dairy cow. So with that being the case, we, we have found that we need to strategically supplement with some grain at, at key parts of the year, key times of the year when those, when those warm season forages are just not of a quality level to support that ruminant, whether it's a, whether it's a young heifer that requires higher nutrition or, or lactating cow. Um, and it's, you know, it just, it's the, it goes with the nature of the, of the, of the warm season grasses. Um, that's their mechanism to survive, uh, you know, when it's over 90 degrees for, for six or, you know, more months of the year. Uh, a lot of those higher quality cool season grasses wouldn't be able to span that time. So that's, that's just the way it works. And we're going to, you know, we're going to try to work with mother nature as much as we can and not against um, to, to cut down on some unnecessary cost that we would incur. So uh, we're utilizing the, the volume that's produced here, uh, the time, the, the, the large window of the year that we can harvest it. Um, and the, the, the comfortable temperatures for 100% outdoor housing of cattle, um, looking to, to gain efficiency from all those things, realizing that all that forage we produce, a lot of it's not gonna stand alone, um, carry that cow, so we're, we're gonna need to supplement. So that's the reason we, we feed the way we do. Gotcha, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you, do you think that, that grass, fed operations maybe in a beef situation are realistically possible in the south i mean i know we can grow our our winter forages and all that but is this realistic to think that cattle could be gaining weight most months of the year in louisiana i think they could be um and i, I think i think there's some opportunities that the that possibly a grass-fed beef, beef operation may be able to capitalize on that we cannot, uh, or I, I shouldn't say cannot, or just currently are not. And I think we, I think we continue to have a lot to learn. There's a lot we don't know today, and we're we're continually learning in this area. And and I hope that if we did this in five years, that that we'd be doing things that uh, I'd be able to talk about things we're doing that we're not doing today because we've learned a lot. Um, mm. I think warm season natives have a real place to fill some of that gap. I don't have a lot of experience personally with them, but I've, I've heard other producers speaking. Uh, I've heard uh, qualified presentations on, on warm season um, native performance, especially in a grass finished beef model um, that, could, that could help keep those gains going 12 months of the year. Um, and even along with that, uh, even something simple like uh, summer annuals, uh, we utilize summer annuals a lot um, and, and not even purchase. These are volunteer that come. Um, They're a lot higher in digestibility than the, than the perennials. And they had a lot of performance during those warm, you know, during the warm season. So I think that, I think that that gap can be closed tremendous. I think, I think all grass finished beef has a place here. I think, I think it's going to take a, I think it's going to take a good manager. It's going to take, uh, you're going to have to, 
you know, make sure that you are, are capitalizing on all those opportunities you have to, to fill in forage quality during the warm season. Um, you know, now the flip side of that, the, the cool season here is, uh, is, is pretty nice. We can, we can grow some really high quality forage, ryegrass, oats, pretty good season of the year during the winter. Um, they generally don't freeze out like they do farther north. Um, and that allows for a lot of opportunity, you know, through that November through April timeframe that, um, when a lot of, uh, beef or cattle operations would be relying on 100% stored feed, we can still be out there, in fact, grazing. And that's a, that's a huge thing that we, I think that we can leverage um, in this subtropical environment uh, in ruminant production. I think it's something we need to make sure we, um, you know, we do to the fullest. Absolutely, those are some really great points. Um, when we visited a little bit earlier, you know, whenever I called you with different questions, we talked about in the Deep South that although the weather is temperate, it holds its own nutritional challenges. Can you tell us a little about these challenges from your experience? What challenges are really hard for you guys down here? Yeah, um, probably the biggest thing that we run into is we, are, I should say our biggest headwind probably on forage nutrition is going to be um, from July through October. Uh, that's when even our warm season perennials just get into a, a range where they're just too lignified um, to really make some classes of cattle uh, perform well. And we, we, we've learned that's the smaller frame cattle, the younger cattle, and of course the the dairy cows or the lactating cows that require a higher nutritional um, intake situation, you know, during those times. Now, what we do on the milk cow side to explain a little bit about our operation, we're we're seasonal with our production, so we calve all of our cows in September and October, and then we actually end our lactation the end of July. So that 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 takes away any milk cow nutritional requirements for us during that flat spotted you know, part of the season. Um, of course, you can't do that with young cattle. They need to continue to, uh, to grow and perform 12 months out of the year. So we found that some, that some key supplementation, especially on cattle that are less than, um, I'm going to say 500 pounds, uh, really benefits us through those times of the year. And so we, we put our yearlings on, on, uh, on a relatively inexpensive grain mix that we put together ourselves. And we, we feed that through self-feeders. We let them eat as much as that, of that as they want through, through that uh, early fall time period. And it does seem like it, it makes a difference in being able to just keep some cover on those cattle, keep them from going backwards. Uh, it's interesting, our, our bulls, our replacement bulls, we, we house them uh, all together in one group. So they're getting the they're getting the same nutritional uh, intake, and they are essentially three different classes of bulls because we we don't use our bulls as yearlings. We use them as two year olds and three year olds, and then we call them. So we have yearlings, two year olds, and three year olds that are in the same management system all the time. And it's interesting in those late summer time periods, and and into the fall, our our yearlings will 
begin to drop a little bit. We'll, we'll go down maybe as much as a body condition score from ideal. Two-year-olds seem to hang in there about perfect, and our three-year-olds actually um, get a little bit uh, get a little bit over-conditioned by the end of the summer. So it's very interesting to see that. Um, and and I don't I don't have any data to to say why that is. My theory is that it's just simply rumen size. Um, I think the rumens on those yearlings are just too small to handle the volume of extremely low quality forage that they need to put through themselves on a daily basis to keep gaining weight. Uh, the bigger the rumen gets, the more they can, they can utilize, um, you know, lower quality forage, you know, and you compare that to ruminants in the wild, you know, you see some of the largest ruminants are, are really consuming some of the lowest quality forage. It's kind of, kind of interesting. Um, you know, so there's something to that and it's just the way, uh, the way a ruminant works, you know, they need, uh, they eat relatively low nutrient dense feed anyway. Um, but you get into some of these extremely highly lignified, and I'm talking Bermuda grass in September, which is just, there's just the leaf to stem ratio on that's just terrible. And there's just so much stem going through them, so little uh, high quality forage that they have to eat a huge amount of it to, to be able to uh, continue to perform. So, um, so that's kind of the, those are the limitations we've observed and we really try to respect them as much as we can um, because if we don't, you know, we're going to, we're going to suffer financially for it for sure. Well, and that's, that's awesome. Really good points. Did you say your bulls kept a better condition than the others or no? Um, they would, they would perform very similar to any of the other classes of cattle that would not be supplemented with grain or anything. That's a good point. I really didn't clarify that. Um, the, the, the reason the bull group is so interesting to observe is because they're, uh, they would be an all forage group through that time period. So, so the fact that they're on, they're on all forage really um, brings to light what's going on differently in those different age classes of cattle. So based on that information, we would, we would say, okay, our, our yearling heifers, they, we need to be having some, some grain supplementation going in here for, um, you know, for these periods of time when, when the forage just doesn't cover it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about the, the room and size, Kent Farrow in his newsletters always talks about a, a cow, choosing your cattle that look like a 10 pounds of sugar in a five pound sack. Does that translate also to your cattle and your selection as far as genetics goes? Yeah, to a degree it does. Uh, you know, we're, you know, we're not, as far as milk production, we're going to be, um, we're going to be at half or less milk per cow per day from what the average North American confinement dairy operations produce. And so, so we are at a lower level of production. Um, and we are looking for, for an animal that's a little thicker than, uh, than, a, than a normal, uh, dairy cow might be, um, has a little bit wider stance and yeah, we're, we're definitely looking for, um, that, that roundness, uh, that, you know, a little bit more of that barrel type shape quality. Now, you know, our, our cattle, you know, being dairy genetics are gonna, gonna be a little finer boned anyway than the, than the beef cows are. So they're going to have a dairy look to them, but, but they're going to be, um, they're definitely going to be a little thicker than, uh, 
than than your normal confinement dairy cattle would be. In fact, our 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 kids used to show our commercial cattle some in the local uh, livestock shows, and uh, I always put them first because they're my kids' cattle. But uh, they <laughs> always came in dead last because um, they just they the the judge just was not going to tolerate that 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 level of thickness or dairy quality. But obviously, mm. that was for the environment that they're in. Uh, we're looking for something that's going to produce a nominal amount of milk but have a tremendous amount of longevity, be able to walk a lot of miles across the course of her lifetime. Um, so she's going to have to have some more of that quality. But yeah, that, that room and size goes with that when she's, you know, when she's going to be a, a, a high percentage of her diet's coming from forage. Yep. Very interesting. So, um, so yeah, that, that seems to translate really well into the beef side of things. And also she, maybe, maybe the bigger rumen you know, is kind of a selecting factor. If you're looking at cattle just visually, selecting for that that roundness and a lot of rumen capacity gives us a little bit of an advantage. We've seen that in our cattle as far as the ones that are, um, the ones that are rounder and, and deeper seem to perform a lot better on forage-based feeds. That's than, interesting. Than I would, else. yeah, I, I would definitely believe that. Um, when we visited before also, you said, um, you know, there's an ebb and flow, like tell us a, a little bit about season to season. We know what right now it's January and you're starting in January. Start us off and tell us what your ebb and flow is as far as forages and forage quality and all that. Well, yeah, I think, you know, as, as grazers, we'd like to think that there's, you know, somewhere we can go where it's just great grazing conditions all the time. And New Zealand's probably as close as you're going to get to that. And I know they can have some terrible weather sometimes too, but, uh, but we do, we have every season has some real pluses and minuses with it um, that are going to, you know, enhance and deter production and, and even uh, quality of life and your, your desire to be out there in it and all that kind of thing. You know, you know, we got January here in North Louisiana. Um, we are in, we're in mid-production, you know, we're in full production, our, our calves are weaned, um, you know, we're, we're producing a lot of milk right now, and, and, you know, we'll continue to do that through the, till the warm weather sets in, so, you know, so this is a production time of year for us, but we have, we do have, uh, you know, things that even hit us this, this time of year that, that deter from that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had that extreme cold snap there around Christmas time, um, you know, we dropped down to the low teens, which is very cold for us here. And, uh, you know, of course, dry matter intake requirements skyrocket, probably past what we can get in the cattle for that given period of time. So we saw production suffer. We, we lost about 10% of our production for a few days. Um, and it's just the way it's going to be. And, you know, you, you hate to see that when you're at, you know, when you're crossing the peak of your production curve you know, you hate to see any of that headwind, but, but it's there. But, you know, the other thing along with that is, uh, you know, we've been experiencing since then some unseasonably mild weather, which is keeping the warm, or excuse me, the cool season forage is pretty awake. And it's really interesting when we get, if we could get uh, two, three days in a row of sunshine to go with our high sixties and low seventies, we'll see, uh, we'll see the bulk tank respond very favorably to that because that's uh, that's, that's an increase in, in energy 
carbohydrate just from those few days of the sun uh, shining on those those living forages. So that's those are advantages. That's that's free feed that we get in a time of year when it's really hard to capitalize on that in, in a lot of other places. You know, and then we move into spring when, just like a lot of other places in the country, spring the time when you just can't do anything wrong. Uh, there's there's plenty of energy and and protein and in just about everything out there. Uh, you know, cattle do have some great compensatory performance. Um, you know, anything that's not quite carrying the cover that you'd like it to, they make that ground up nicely that time of year. Um, you know, so that's not only something we enjoy, but it's something we need to count on because we need to um, we need to put on as much of that as we can uh, going into you know more difficult times of the year when the heat sets in. So. But spring is, you know, spring can be tornado season here in Louisiana too. So about the time you're enjoying the beautiful forage you're on, you gotta uh, make sure your cows aren't sucked out of the parish by a tornado when it sweeps across your farm. So, you know, these are things that we, you know, that we have to deal with. Um, but then we, you know, we, we're gonna move into the summertime here um, and, and by mid-May, um, the heat is going to start to uh, bring our production numbers down on a daily basis. Uh, we're going to begin to start uh, needing to cool our cattle. We do that with our with our irrigation rigs. We have mister lines on them, and we have to keep them under the pivots to to cool them through the warmer weather, which which limits to a degree uh, some of our our grazing flexibility. We can we still rotate on a daily basis. We have to take that into account. So we add labor and management. Um, if nothing else, and we see production move down. And, and as we move through the summer, um, you know, we're thinking more toward winding down our production for the year. We're, you know, that'll end the end of July. So we're, you know, we're, we're making some low volume, uh, but high component milk that time of year, much higher butterfat protein levels because the milk is, is less fluid volume to it. So that's a, that's a plus. Um, but but summertime and then late summer and, and early fall are probably our most difficult, in my opinion, um, times of year to to be working with cattle just because of the heat, the humidity. Um, I think our our oxygen exchange level for those cattle drops a good bit that time of year just because of the intensity of the heat and humidity and the length of days. I'm sure there's data on that. I, I've not seen it. Um, but then along with that, we're dealing with very low quality forage too. So. So that's a challenging time um, for us. A big plus that goes with that is we've we've now inherited a herd of dry cows, so we don't have to. You know, we're not trying to support production. We're just trying to maintain a a, a far out dry cow in August. Um, so they utilize poor quality forage very well. That's because um, you've dried your cows up in um, in July. Is that when you dry them up? That's July correct. The end of the end of July, we would finish milking, so the entire herd would be dried up. So we we go out of the milk shipping business for about six weeks um, in August and early September. Um, yeah, and then we move into fall and we we start calving in September, um, and we really like that season here. Uh, September and October is is generally dry months which is great for, for rearing baby calves. Uh, of course, being on a dairy, we pull our calves off and we, we raise them in, in mobs of their own. They're not with the, the mama cows. Um, so we, we have to feed them daily and all those types of things. So having, having warm, dry, sunny conditions 
uh, is great for starting calves from a from a health standpoint. Um, you know, and then as as those calves start to to get to be a, a, a weaning age and and they move off the milk and they start to harden up, we start to bring in some of the cooler weather of the early winter, um, and they kind of transition nicely into to preparing themselves for winter. They they get a hairy coat and get um, you know are able to take that cold weather that comes. A little later on, um, December tends to be a, a good month for production for us. Um, you know, our, our cool seasons that we've that we planted or overseeded, uh, we're taking our first graze of them off in December. So the the nutritional quality of that and the available quantity is really optimal that time of year. So we see milk, you know, bump up. December is probably our best winter production month for milk. Um, you know, we'll see it dip slightly in January, February, and then uh, and it comes back up. Then once the once the days lengthen and we get more sunshine and warm weather, it's uh, yeah. So that's kind of a little bit of a snapshot trip around our year. Um, it's amazing how everything is really tied to the angle of that sun up in the sky. Really is the driver behind everything that we that we do. Uh, when we don't have that sun angle, we're just kind of in um, in a holding mode, waiting for it to come back. Um, you know, we we have a limited amount of feed that we can feed. Um, you know, so we're we're anxious for those uh, those grazing days when we have an unlimited amount of feed in the field. We can we can feed because that's our that's our least cost, most efficient way to um, to feed cattle for sure. Feed in the field. I like that feed in the field now tell us about what your guys what you guys are planting kind of through the year you said december you've done overseeded you're grazing overseeded stuff in december yeah we're uh we're we're pretty much a hundred percent um warm season perennial base with hybrid bermuda grass we run uh, russell bermuda is is what all of our pastures are you know, permanently planted in um and then when we would move to um, the wintertime season, we would, some of those acres are going to be designated to, um, to feed bales on. Uh, we, we, we try to budget about a half acre per milk cow. Um, and we rotate uh, our herd across those acres of dormant Bermuda. And we unroll bales is our method of feeding in the field. Keeps the nutrients spread out, uh, minimizes hay waste, and, and um, keeps the cattle clean and all that type of thing. So that's going to be about 75% of their daily forage intake through the winter months. Uh, and then the balance, the, the other 25%, would be coming from, um, from limited grazing of, of winter annuals. Uh, so what we do with our other acres that are, well, all of our acres that we're not going to be feeding on, we're going to overseed. and we've really um, kind of been on a journey with that for years, trying to figure out, you know, how can we, how can we plant into a, to a Bermuda sod and get winter forage to come up uh, preferably early, uh, say December, if possible for early winter grazing um, without tilling the, the warm season, pastures because we're not gonna that just tillage in any form does not fit our program in any way um and it's it's uh, just from a practical standpoint we can't we can't bring it in 
and make it work. We're, we can't take away the integrity of our of our paddocks in the wintertime to support cattle. Uh, we sure can't justify the, the fuel in a depreciation to get it done. Uh, so that just doesn't have a fit. So how do we do that? Is there a way to do that? Really was the question we've asked for a long time. We've we tried a different couple different styles of drills, um, a couple different planning methods uh, to, to limited success. And we, we've really kind of gotten to a place where we feel we've implemented a program a couple years ago that, that's, that's given us great success. We're very pleased with, um, and it's pretty simple. We, what we're going to do with, with our winter planted ground, we're going to start in August with our dry cows, which everything's in one big mob, our, our, our spring and heifers, our dry cows, everything that's going to calve is in one group. So it's a huge group of cattle and we're going to take them through. We're going to mob graze off, um, all that late summer cover to try to get as, as much of that, that down as we can. Um, and as we're starting into that process, um, well, maybe fast forward a couple of weeks, say it's, say it's the first of September, we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, and aerially seed, brought, uh, fly on about 25 pounds of ryegrass per acre, preferably ahead of some of that mob grazing so we can get some incorporation of that just from hoof traffic on those on that dry mob and then when we get that cover removed uh, hopefully uh, we're going to begin this process by september 15th um, we have a we have a great plains no-till drill uh, it's, it's an older model it's nothing special uh, it was it was modified in that uh, there was another row of uh, a vertical tillage calders added to it. Uh, if you're familiar with the Great Plains 1500 drills, they just are a no, they're just a three-point drill that's on a Great Plains as a no-till caddy or no-till cart. It's just simply has a row of waffle calders up front. Um, it gives you some some disturb some in-row disturbance where you're trying to plant at. Um, the particular farmer we bought this off of had a he had he had added a second row of calders so each row has two three-quarter inch waffle calders that are staggered in front of the opener um which which in theory is going to give you an inch and a half wide by hopefully inch and a half deep uh area of loosened ground nothing's turned over nothing's torn up just a loosened zone that that oat seed and that's what we're planting with the drill is 100 pounds of oats per acre uh, that that oat seed lands in. And we found that when we do that and we get that level of vertical disturbance in row, that oat seed germinates like it's in tilled ground. Uh, it comes right out of that sod. And that's what we're looking for. So we get rapid germination, rapid early season growth. And if that's happening you know, before the end of September, uh, we can get um, you know a little bit of fertility on that by early October. We uh, we also have irrigation on about three quarters of our acreage, so we would we would make sure that the moisture levels are adequate there, and we can really capitalize on October and November growing conditions. And that seems to be the sixty days when you really produce fall forage here. Um, so that that's our goal. And that's kind of the tools we use to, to do that with. And if we can do that and uh, we can, you know, then we can kind of assess the forage that we have out there, uh, say by Thanksgiving. 
and we would begin our our, our winter grazing rotation with that and, and and it's much less forage than what the milk and herd would demand of course for the for the you know the duration of the winter so we kind of graze that on a budgeted standpoint um and, and a, about the best we can do is is fill in about 25 percent of the milk cows dry matter intake requirements from grazed forage but with that uh with 25 percent we we can we can see uh a good 15 percent bump in milk and about a 15 percent reduction in grain consumption uh, when we can do that and that so that's a huge margin gainer for us um that time of the year uh, there's some variables there that doesn't allow it to happen as nice as you'd like it to every year um, and then when we're when we're harvesting that through grazing you do have to be careful of cold weather extremes like we had with the with the freeze a couple weeks ago um, we needed to we need to pull off of there for about a week or 10 days because we can't trample that that ground at all uh, when it's when it's in a freezing conditions because we will kill that oats plant so so it's a little bit sensitive, uh, but we try to manage around that and, and obey those rules as much as we can. Um, and that, that allows us to, to utilize that, that high quality, relatively low cost feed, um, you know, compared to what it would be in, in grain or, or high quality baleage. Mm. Right, and it, it looks like we're, nearing the end i wanted to kind of get through um a little bit more months as far as you know give us an overview of what you're doing january and february are always a challenge for a lot of operations can you tell us how you're managing forages during those really cold times to those two months yeah january and february are a challenge and like i said they they are they are harder to get production those months than than december uh the main reason is you know we we've We've gone through our, you know, our first round of grazing of our of our winter annuals. You're kind of assessing, okay, how much regrowth did I get early no, or late November, early December? What's out there right now? How much, you know, I'd like to keep some element of green feed going in these cattle through the end of February if I can. So you may have to throttle back that budget, that feed budget some, which is which is going to bring in more baleage and, you know. By default, grain consumption is going to bump back up a little bit. Milk's not going to peak out quite where you want it to. So you lose some of that margin, and that's that's frustrating. Um, you know, really, that time of year, we're just uh, really hoping it's the end of February really soon. Uh, that's kind of our, our main management technique that we're going to implement then. And it, and it comes. Um, doesn't take, you know, doesn't take forever. We get to spring. And then, then things, of course, you know, change rapidly um, to be very favorable. March is generally a, a, a very favorable month. We, you know, we'll, you know, that doesn't, doesn't take too long before you be, get into a forage surplus situation. Um, we try to, we try to utilize, we don't harvest any spring forage for baleage because we just find we don't have the weather conditions to get the, get the forage harvested correctly mechanically. So uh, we end up wasting some forage by late March and April, uh, which is okay, I think. And we, we also try to utilize leader follower as much as we can. We'll, we, you know, we'll run the highest nutritional requirement group in there first. Uh, they can be selective and we're going in with lower, you know, lower requiring groups, bred heifers and bulls uh, can, can follow them. It's amazing how when you stack a couple groups up, all of a sudden you've, you've utilized forage a lot better than you could have otherwise. So 
um, that's kind of what we we move into with with spring. So yeah, it goes from goes from uh, you know pretty gloomy and tough to uh, to nice pretty quick, and we're uh, unfortunately today on the uh, gloomy and tough side, but the nice days are coming quick. They are, thank goodness, and, and I know a lot of people are are with you on the can't wait for the end of February to get here. It's it's kind of a waiting game almost with lots. And, and when you say baleage, I'm sure hay is also part of that as well. Dry hay and baleage, is that what you're doing? We we feed very little dry hay. Um, and the main reason for that is when you, after you make baleage, your patience level gets down to zero where you just can't wait for hay to dry. So we really struggle to make dry hay. In fact, some of our best dry hay has been made when when we break equipment and are forced to stay off of it for a few days if we're lucky enough to not get a rain we make some great dry hay um <laughs> we, we're primarily all baleage um just from a that, that can be a whole other podcast probably should be another whole other podcast there's a lot to talk about i think with baleage um but but that's our that's our primary primary feed source so it is awesome so in summary do you do you really believe that that 100% forage based is truly possible here or is it not you know I know we touched on that in the grass-fed operation for yours but do you really believe it's possible or with more research and more time and efforts or is it kind of one a shot in the dark no I think I think 100% forage uh grass-finished beef uh I would say I, I I would I would have some real reservation on an on an all-grass dairy in the south mm -hmm. but i think i think forage finished beef is definitely a possibility and i think it's you know kind of like we talked about before i think it's really um you definitely don't want to leave any stone unturned i think you want to utilize all the, the the benefits that you can get seasonally and have a real respect for those times of year that are definitely playing against you and not for you you know and come up with strategy and and there again you know um very high quality baleage made at a different time of the year can be a great supplementation that time of year for uh you know for a forage uh, an all forage beef producer um you know doing those types of things I, I think the biggest thing is just recognizing and respecting those those times of year in the south when it's just not favorable to put in in natural conditions to put a pound on a cow uh there's a reason why there's not feedlots in the deep south and that's that's why because of the conditions, but that's okay. We have, I think, plenty of advantages that give us, um, you know, good local strategic advantage that can help us economically with, with beef production in this area. Absolutely. Ted, this was very, 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 very informative. And we really appreciate your time and efforts to answer our questions through this. And we think that this will be beneficial for a lot of people to hear well, sure I, I sure hope it is uh and it's just it's always it's always uh after you make a lot of mistakes for a long time it's always fun to talk about them and that's kind of that's kind of the result of our conversation is just a bunch of a bunch of trial and error and that's the great thing about um you know all the beef producers who who are, who are listening to this they they share in that they do those same things every day so it's always great to be able to get together and uh, and bounce some of those things off each other and and uh, we always go away uh, having gains from that. I know I do. So yeah, it's been a pleasure. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Our organization is constantly trying to find new ways to bring relevant education to people in Louisiana agriculture. If you'd like to find out more about LGLCI events, read blog posts, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, you can find that through our website, louisianaglci.org. We can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Lastly, we would like to thank NRCS Louisiana for partially funding this podcast and thank Louisiana artist James McCann for allowing us to use his music.